We're continuing in our series of messages in the Gospel of John. We're in the second half, and I do think the theme of abiding in Jesus is dominant in the second half of the Gospel. I think one of the things I'd like to talk about as we get started here, uh, I've always, since I was a kid, I've enjoyed fantasy as a genre, science fiction, but fantasy a lot. I think one of the fascinating things about fantasy novels or movies uh, like the Harry Potter series is this idea that there's a whole world of things going on right under our noses that we just don't realize because we're not aware, we can't see it. And you know, there's these hidden doorways that open up to a whole other reality full of wonder and amazing things we never knew about. Well, believe it or not, That's kind of the way Jesus describes his kingdom. We're in John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 31. And I have titled today's message, The Unseen Kingdom. And y'all can ignore that. That's last week's. But anyway, uh, chapter 14, verses 22 through 31. Let's start in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you are about to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make a dwelling place with him. The one who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word you hear is mine, is not mine, but of the Father who sent me. Jesus has been talking to his disciples, and in what we were looking at last week, uh, Jesus has told them that uh, they will see him, but the world will not. He will reveal himself to his disciples, but not to the world. And Judas, this isn't Judas who betrayed him. This is another disciple that also had the name Judas. He asks him, Lord, how is it? That you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world. And I'm sure he's, he's puzzled by this because uh, he's grown up with this expectation of God sending the promised Messiah. God, for centuries, for millennia, had already been talking about sending a king who would be prince of peace, who would be king of kings and lord of lords, and would establish the eternal kingdom of God, and all the nations of the earth would be brought under his governance, and he would bring perfect peace to creation. Judas has a valid question. How do you expect to accomplish this if nobody even knows you're here? If nobody's even aware of it? How do you plan on making yourself known as King of Kings and Lord of Lords if you're only going to be revealing yourself to a few people, not to everybody? So uh, the, the idea is, how are you going to be this promised Messiah and only reveal yourself to us and not to the whole world? And Jesus explains. He goes back to what he's been talking about in the previous verses, about loving him and keeping his commandments. He says says it again. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What I have said, he will obey and keep and guard and do what I have said. And this is what's going to happen to those who respond to me in love. And love is demonstrated through the trust of obedience. 
those who do this, my father is going to love him. God, and uh, I've said this in the Gospel of John, the word father is one of the key theologically significant words in the whole gospel. A hundred and twenty times in the Gospel of John, the word father is used to describe God. And uh, you think Jesus wanted to get a point across? By saying that over and over again. That God is not just some deity sitting up there aloof on his grand throne over creation. But that God's desire is to be in a relationship with us as intimate and as uh, caring as that of a loving father with his child. God wants to be father to us. So if we will love Jesus and keep his word, my father will love him. And we... Jesus and the Father will come to him and make a dwelling place with him. That term there in the Greek, dwelling place, is the exact same one that he used earlier in the chapter when he said that in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. And we talked about that, how Jesus was saying, I am going to make a place for you in the house of God. And I'm going to do it by going to a cross and giving my life to purchase this belonging for you in the Father's house. And what is the Father's house? Well, the house of the Father is all of us who respond to him in faith and God comes to dwell in our hearts and lives. We become the temple of the living God. So he's talking about this again. My Father and I will come to him and make our dwelling place with him. Uh, Anecdotally, this is the only passage in the New Testament that speaks of the Father dwelling in the believer. There are passages, a lot of passages, that talk about Christ being in us. A lot of passages that talk about the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, But this one mentions the Father dwelling in us. And the reason for that is we only have one God. It isn't three gods. Uh, So the whole uh, of who God is is involved in this relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this indwelling reality in our lives when we turn to him in love. I love that uh, even though John talks about faith a lot, uh, as opposed to the Apostle Paul, for him, faith is the connecting word between us and God. We have faith in God and we come to the obedience of faith. We submit ourselves to the redeeming work of Jesus Christ in our hearts and lives and let him transform us and redeem us and rescue us. But John talks about love as the connecting thing. It isn't just trust. It's a love that results in obedience. And when we love him, God loves us back and comes to dwell in us. That is the reality of how he is establishing his kingdom. And the minute somebody responds to Jesus in loving obedience, a whole secret world opens up. When God comes to live in our hearts, something changes. And suddenly, the world around us is not the world we used to know because we ourselves are transformed in the encounter and we no longer view the world the way we used to. We no longer perceive it the way we used to. We no longer inhabit the world the way we used to. And God brings by his Spirit glories to bear in our lives and hearts. Things like grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and a goodness that overcomes evil. 
That, that's what he brings to our lives and hearts. So the kingdom is very much real in the lives and hearts of those who turn to him in love, but not in the lives and hearts of everyone. The one who does not love me does not keep my words. Notice uh, how in John's gospel, he makes it pretty clear. If you love Jesus, you're going to do what he told you to do. If you don't do what Jesus tells you to do, it's because you don't love him. We can say we love him, but if we don't love him enough to trust him and obey him, then we're just blowing smoke. We are just uh, talking about something that is not a reality in our lives. And you might say, well, why, uh, why do I have to obey to love Jesus? Well, it's, it's who it is we're choosing to love. And I'll say this, be careful, when I'm not talking in marriage that, you know, if you love me, you're going to obey me. Um, there are many passages in the New Testament that talk about marriage, and the word obedience is only used when we're talking about children, not spouses. Um, so uh, it, it, it isn't that love means you're going to do whatever I tell you. But in the case of God, when God is the object of our love, there's a reason we obey God. Because God is good. Because there is not a single thing about him that is self-interested or twisted or, or, or wrong. Because God is wise, there is not a thing of which he is unaware. There is not a bit of information he lacks to have full, perfect, and complete understanding of every single circumstance we might face. So when God gives a command, when God gives an instruction, we are being guided into the good. Every time we choose to disobey God, we are choosing to not do the good. So we obey when we love God. We obey because of who it is we're loving. He is perfect. And he is worthy of that obedience. We keep his word. And we enter into this kingdom that is hidden in plain sight. Those who refuse and say, no, I want to do things my way. Redemption, transformation, you're going to change me from the inside out. I'm not interested in that. I want to keep being self-centered. I want to keep living the life the way I want to live it. And I want to identify the way I want to identify. And I want to construct everything about myself the way I choose to do it. And God bought out. Those who choose to respond to God's loving invitation in Jesus that way will be completely unaware of the kingdom. And it's going on right next to them. But they won't see it. Jesus reminds them, the word you hear is not mine. I'm not just some human being spouting off the latest philosophical ramblings of a human mind. I am sharing with you the word of God Almighty, the Father who sent me here to redeem. The message is the message of God Almighty. That's the message you are choosing to reject when you say, I want nothing to do with this. Jesus said, we will know his kingdom when we love him and obey him. Then God will give us his Holy Spirit. I want to ask you to think about that a moment. How do you participate in a kingdom that those around you can't even see?
Let's keep on. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So how does this kingdom life work? This hidden, unseen world that we inhabit when we come to love and obey Christ? Well, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And that is the means through which he guides us into this life in his kingdom. He describes the Holy Spirit as advocate. That's, that's not a perfect translation. The word there in the Greek, paraclete, it's the one who stands next to. That can have the idea of a defense attorney. You're in court, you're being accused of something, and he is standing on your behalf. But it's more than just legal. It's the idea of the guy that's in your corner. The guy that is on your side, the guy that is with you. And Jesus in the passage we were looking at last week describes him as coming to dwell with us eternally. A permanent God on my side, in my corner, working on my behalf. That's why I surrender my life to his guiding work. So how do we live this life in the kingdom? We accept our new rabbi who is the Holy Spirit whom the Father sends in Jesus' name. He teaches us all things. There's not a thing the Holy Spirit is unaware of. There's not an area in which we need instruction or guidance or comfort or challenging or correcting or whatever we might need. There's not a, per, a single area of our lives in which he is deficient in his understanding. He knows exactly what we need at every moment. Sometimes it's silence. Sometimes it's a powerful word. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a compelling uh, urge. He works in so many mysterious and wonderful ways, but he absolutely knows exactly everything we need to be instructed. And he says, he'll bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I think there are two things going on in the Gospels. On the one hand, I think Jesus with his disciples behaved the way rabbis in his day did. I think he spent time with them and guided them in memorizing bodies of information that he was teaching. So sermons that he would repeat, parables that he would tell in more than one circumstance. He would help his disciples commit it to memory. That's the way education was done in the first century. The rabbis would instruct their students and they would memorize word for word enormously long uh, texts or passages of teaching or information. So I think Jesus did that with his disciples. And in the earliest days of the church, when we read in the book of Acts that the, the apostles say, you guys need to set aside some deacons to serve the, the needs of the church because we have to devote, devote ourselves to the word. I think in, in that time, the disciples, the apostles were trying to give shape to this, what would become the oral tradition about Jesus, the teachings, the parables, the specific events of his life that they put together into this body of memorized work and I think that oral tradition was what lies behind the Gospels of Matthew Mark and Luke which is why they are so similar the technical term for that is synoptic uh, the synoptic Gospels who have the same optic the same uh, perspective or view and many passages in Ma Matthew Mark and Luke are identical word for word 
When John sat down to write his gospel, and I think he did it uh, years after the other three gospels were written, I think he wanted to contribute something that that body of oral tradition was lacking. Uh, he wanted, he looked back and he meditated on events and he kind of zeroed in on, on these one-on-one on one encounters Jesus had with people, like with that woman out by the well in Samaria outside the town of Sychar. Or that time Nicodemus showed up at night to talk to Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. Even when Jesus was arrested and brought before Pilate, the, the conversation Jesus had with Pontius Pilate about truth of all things. He, he uh, thought about these things and thought, you know, this isn't part of the body of oral tradition we've been teaching, but it's part of what I remember of Jesus that I, I think the church needs. And he remembered this final night Jesus had with his disciples and the many things he talked to them about that final night that was not part of the memorized, uh, structured teaching of Jesus, but was spontaneous last night teaching. We have several chapters here in John that record for us teaching that's not found in the other Gospels. So John very deliberately set out to write a Gospel that included the stuff that was not part of the already widely disseminated body of oral tradition. The Holy Spirit brought to his mind these moments. The Holy Spirit brought to John's mind and to the apostles' minds, the teachings of Jesus, the words he spoke, the events. And very, in a very real sense, the Holy Spirit inspired John as he sat down to write this book that we would have a record of the things that Jesus had done and said that are not covered for us in the other three Gospels. It's a perfect illustration of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, how he fills in what might be lacking and gives to us the perfect teaching, guidance, instruction, correction, whatever it is we need every step of the way. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. How has God, by his Holy Spirit, taught you everything you needed in life thus far? You're still here, right? How did God get you here? Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor be afraid. Peace was a big deal in the first century. It was one of the propaganda slogans of the Roman Empire. The famous Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You know how Rome established this peace? They raised armies. They conquered nations. They set up kings in these nations that would do what they told them to do. They built highways and machines of war. They were great engineers. And they connected everything so they could get their armies wherever they needed really fast. And the minute anybody uh, tried to rebel or do anything, they crushed them with an iron fist. And that was how the very uh, famous and, and, and uh, much talked about Pax Romana was kept. It was kept by the sword. It was kept through violence. Through conquest, subjugation, and violence is how the Romans kept peace. And here's the sad thing. Uh, 
they made life better for people than it had been before them. The previous attempts at peace were, were, were not even as successful as that. And they were always established through conquest and force. Even the best of them. Even the people who had the noblest ideals like Alexander the Great who wanted to unify the ancient world with Greek culture. Even he did it with the sword. Jesus says, let me talk to you about the Pax Messianica. Let me talk to you about a different kind of peace. I'm going to leave my peace with you. I'm going to give you my peace. He says, don't, don't get scared. I'm not giving you what Rome is talking about. I'm giving you something different. I think as Christians we need to remember that. That the peace Christ came to bring to this world, the Prince of Peace, that peace is happening and it's being implemented in the world right now, not through use of force, but through Jesus bringing peace to human hearts. You know what sin does to every single one of us? It immediately puts us at war. It sets us against our Creator. We defy the God who gave us the breath of life and everything we have. We defy him and say, I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. And I don't care what you have to say about it, God. And I'm rebelling against you, creator. But that's not the only thing we're at war with. I also want to make sure none of you mess with my freedoms and with my building of what I'm doing with my life. So I'm at war with all of you too because everything about you is in some way not meeting an expectation I have for myself and I am angry with you. And hatred consumes our hearts and war is all we know. Jesus said, you know how I'm going to fix that? I'm going to give you myself. I am your peace. And that's what happens when we turn to Jesus in love and we surrender ourselves to what he's up to in our lives and he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit within, his presence within. He does not hate. He loves even our enemies. Enough to die on a cross so that they had the option of redemption. Even if they spit in his face and reject it and insist on hell instead, he still did it. That peace comes inside of us and it begins to transform all of our relationships. Suddenly, I am not at war with God. He's not my enemy. He's not the ultimate spoil sport out to ruin my life and rob it of joy. I finally realized that's a lie. He's the only one in my corner. He's the only one who wants the best, unadulterated good. When I turn to him and say, I want that, take my life and make it good. The Holy Spirit begins his work of peacemaking in our hearts. 
How does the Prince of Peace extend his peace the world over? One heart at a time. We Christians need to remember that the peace Jesus brings is not implemented the way the world implements peace. If you need a gun to establish it, it's not the peace of Christ. That's the way atheists can establish peace. Jesus says, I'm giving you a peace that has nothing to do with what the world calls peacemaking. I'm going to end wars at the root. I'm going to end hatred at its root. And the problem is within. We like to think that it's society. We want to blame anybody but me. But I'm the one who's at war. I'm the one who is hateful. I need peace. Here's the beauty of the peace Christ brings. It does not depend at all on anything going on outside of you. It doesn't depend on the world around you. It doesn't depend on your circumstances. It doesn't depend on how somebody else chooses to view you or treat you. Because it comes from Christ. He is our peace. He gives us His peace. That's why we don't have to be troubled. We don't have to be afraid. Jesus brings peace to creation in a unique way. How have you experienced the peace of Jesus in your life? And how has this affected the world around you? Verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I am going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of, this wor- of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I also love the Father, just as the Father commanded me, so I am doing. Rise up. Let us go from here. Jesus has been telling them this. I'm going away and I'm coming back. There are two senses in which Jesus means that to the disciples. In the most immediate sense, within 24 hours, it's evening, they're talking. Uh, Next morning, he's going to be hanging on a cross. Uh, So he's going to die. And until the third day, be utterly absent from their lives. On the third day, he will rise. So in that sense, he's going away to the tomb and will return to them when he rises from the dead. But beyond that, after he rises from the dead, he will be appearing to various disciples and at sometimes groups of 400 at a time. But he will be spending time with his disciples, eating fish with them, walking with them along the way, encountering them one-on-one. For 40 days, he'll be doing that. And then he will ascend to the right hand of the Father and stay. So in that sense, there's also a, Jesus is telling them, I'm going away, but I am coming to you. I will come to you in my spirit. 
The Holy Spirit will come, and in this manner, Jesus will return to you. So uh, he's reminding them of this that he's been talking about. I'm going away, and I'm coming back, and obviously that has uh, scared the disciples. They have been following after him for several years now, probably, and they can't conceive of life without Jesus there with them, physically. I kind of think of, uh, any of you have dogs at home? that get really nervous when you pick up the car keys. You know what I'm talking about? They, they start whining and get upset because they know you're leaving. The disciples are in that moment right now. Jesus is leaving and he keeps telling us it's going to be okay, but it's not. Jesus says, well, there's a reason I have to go. It's better if I go. In fact, if you loved me, you'd rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Boy, isn't that a perplexing sentence. Uh, Many, many uh, strange theologies have been born of this verse. Uh, The whole idea of subordinate theology, subordination, that Jesus is somehow subordinate and less than God the Father that he's some kind of a lesser God. We might think that that's what we're uh, reading here, but just right in the immediate context here, very recently in the Gospel of John, we've read other things that seem to indicate otherwise. In chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says that he and the Father are one. One and the same. Not that he's somehow less than. In chapter 14, verse 7, he tells his disciples that if you know me, you know the Father already. In verse 9, he tells them, if you see me, you have already seen the Father. So it isn't, I don't think, that he's saying somehow that he is less than God. So how do we understand this? The Father is greater than I. There are two ways, at least, in which uh, Christians have tried to understand this without diminishing Jesus. Um, One way is to say that the Son is eternally generated because the Bible says that uh, Jesus uh, proceeds from the Father. And the, as, as Christians have thought about that, they think, well, that, that's an eternal reality within the Godhead. The Son eternally proceeds from the Father. And uh, because the Son is eternally being generated or proceeding from the Father, in that sense, in an ontological sense, uh, there's a difference that means that the Father is greater because he does not proceed. Well, f- first of all, some of you are saying, what? Because uh, that's a really technical uh, theology type thing to, to try to understand something about who God is. Uh, and I'm not sure it quite addresses what Jesus is talking about in this context. The other view, and I think it's the one that is correct, is the idea that as a man, as the incarnate son, Jesus was less than the father in the, the period of his life here on earth. What do I mean by that? And this was uh, suggested by Cyril of Alexandria, Ambrose, and Augustine. We are told in Scripture that Jesus emptied himself of glory in the incarnation. The idea being he set aside his full divine prerogatives willingly. And I think at any moment he could have reclaimed it all. 
but he willingly limited himself to a purely human existence for the years he was here on earth. So that he would get tired if he walked too far. And he would get thirsty if he didn't drink. And if he wanted to talk with the Father, he had to pray. Like you and I do. A completely human life. If he wanted to do a miracle, he depended on the Father to do that work through him. That's why throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is constantly saying, the works I am doing are not my own. I only do what the Father has given me to do. And he was absolutely self-limited in the incarnation to a purely human life. In that sense, Jesus can say, the Father is far greater than I am. And the reason we should rejoice that he's returning to the Father is that he is ending this period of self-imposed limitation and reclaiming the fullness of what is his as God. And we should be happy for him that that's the reality. He is returning to his fullness. Again, he says, I've told you all this before it happens so that when it happens you'll realize and believe that I'm telling you the truth. Things are progressing quickly. Jesus knows Judas is arranging his arrest right now. It's going to happen soon. He says, you know what? I'm not going to be able to talk to you much longer. We have short time now. The ruler of this world is on his way. And that's a, a, a way to reference Satan. He is often described as the ruler or prince of this world. Not because he is the one in charge of everything. He's, not, he's never described as the king of the world. God is the king of the world. But he is a go- governing authority in the structures of this world. Because when we have chosen sin, and we all have, and we have rebelled against God, we have allied ourselves with sin, and that gives Satan a tremendous amount of influence in our world. There are a lot of us who are very eager to take him up on a lot of his ideas. So uh, he is very aptly described as a prince or a governing authority or a ruler in this world. And he is right now orchestrating the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. He's coming and he has nothing in me. But so the world may know that I also love the Father. Just as the Father commanded me, so I am doing. You might have been listening to me this morning and said, you know, this whole thing about if you love me, you will do what I say. That sounds like an abusive husband. And there are people who, who, who do that. The reason I've said we, we can talk about love of God in this manner is that God is absolutely not that way. He is absolutely worthy of a trust that nobody else is worthy of. But you might say, well, you know, that sounds really self-serving, Jesus. If I love you, I have to do what you tell me to do. Why doesn't it work the other way around? Why don't I get to tell you what to do? Well, the easiest response to that, the shortest answer is, he's good, we're not. The reason God should not do what I say is that I, I, would, I would be an atrocious guide for the power of God. I, I'm not good. I'm not wise. I don't know squat. 
And so many times, everything that I'm trying to do, even when I'm trying to do the good thing, it's so tied up in self-centeredness and twisting things for my own benefit that I can't even trust myself. Why should God ever do what I'm trying to tell him to do? That would be horrible. Because he is good, I need to do what he tells me. So you might say to Jesus, yeah, that's kind of easy for you to say. So Jesus concludes these words here by saying, I want the world to know that I love the Father just the way I'm asking you to love me. What I am asking you to do, I'm going to do too. I am going to obey the Father. Within hours, Jesus will be on his knees, sweating drops of blood because of the intensity of his anguish. And he will beg the Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. You know what the Father's response is going to be? No. This is the only way to redeem the world. And I love the world, son. I love you. We both love the world. We have to do this. Go to the cross. Jesus obeyed the Father because he loved him and because he knew if the Father asks it, it is good and I will choose the good. So you can't say to Jesus, you don't know what it's like. It's so hard to obey you, God. Jesus knows better than we will ever know how hard it can be to obey God. He knows. In Hebrews, we're told in the letter to the Hebrews that that is why Jesus had to suffer so much so that he would know what it's like and be the perfect mediator on our behalf. He knows how hard it can be to obey. But this, to quote the Mandalorian, is the way. This is the way. There is no other way. Rise up. Let us go from here. There's no other mention of, of what's going on, the scenery or everything, but it sounds like Jesus is saying, okay, let's leave the upper room and let's head out to the Gethsemane. So it might be that when we get to chapter 15, which is what comes next, and they're on the way, they're walking, and maybe Jesus is talking to them as they're walking out to Gethsemane. Maybe they pass by some vineyards, and that's where Jesus starts talking about vines and grapes and branches. But the scene uh, has basically closed and the conversation will continue as they're heading out. Jesus, in obeying the Father, showed us that the only way to love God is to trust him as God. How have you trusted God by obeying him in your life? Jesus is the promised Messiah the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. He came to defeat all the forces of evil in creation and restore it all to glorious perfection forever. As we look around, it might not seem like he succeeded. Evil still remains. 
In fact, most people don't even recognize that Jesus is alive or present at all, much less that he is currently ruling over all of creation. What we need to learn is that Jesus and his kingdom are operating out of a relationship. Only if we love him and obey him will we participate in his kingdom. Only then will he give us his Holy Spirit to teach and guide us. Only then will he grant us his peace that brings hatred and wars to an end in our own hearts. He does not establish his kingdom, nor does he bring his peace the way the world does through weapons and wars and violence. He does it through an invitation to love him, to trust him enough to obey him, and to allow him to transform us and our world. My question to you this morning is, have you claimed Jesus as the love of your life, as your Lord, as your rescuer? Are you in his kingdom now? Please join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you that in all your goodness you invite us in to share all of it with us. And God, the world is so broken, our lives are so broken, we are so broken. So much needs to be mended and healed and transformed. Lord, I pray for our hearts that you grant us the grace of loving you and trusting you enough to let you change our lives. Bring redemption to bear. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I don't know where you stand this morning with Jesus, whether you know him, as Savior, whether you have surrendered your life to this love in obedience. If you haven't, I want to challenge you this morning to take this frightening step of trust and say, you know what, this is what I've been looking for. If God loves me and wants to bring all of his goodness to bear in my life, I want to open my heart up to that. I want to surrender my life to the obedience of love. If that's you this morning, I'm going to ask, there are some people that are going to help us with the uh, response time. If you'll come forward, and, and they'll be here on either side. During this song, this is your chance to come. Share with those who are here up front and let them pray with you. Maybe you already know Christ and you've been reminded that you haven't been living in his peace. You haven't been living in the life he's called you to live. And in some way, you have strayed from obedience to his love and you want to ask forgiveness and commit yourself to obedience, if that's you this morning, come while we sing. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you this morning. Whatever God has laid on your heart, this is your opportunity to do something physical, tangible, and partner with somebody about it. Let's stand, come while we sing.